he, uh, as you know, he recently resigned after almost 10 years of the Fair Work Commission. I just dragged out two uh, pieces talking about it in, in the press back in when he resigned, and uh, Michael Stutchery's paper said, top industrial judge resigns in disgust <laughs> over biased system. And the Australian said, oh, very tame, Fair Work Commission independence compromise, says Graham Watson. So he's resigned, and he clearly has a few things to say. When he was at the Commission, he was panel head responsible for various industries, including airlines, <coughs> ports, mar maritime, maritime, oil and gas, major projects, retail, hospitality, restaurants, health, and re anything else? <laughs> and so on. He was a member of numerous important full benches, including the award modernisation full bench in 2008 and 2009, arbitration of the 2011 Qantas dispute, and test cases on terminating expired enterprise agreements, bargaining rules, and union right of entry. Prior to his time on the Commission, he spent 24 years as a lawyer at Freehills, and I gather there's a few Freehills folk here. Uh, there's, there's one. <laughs> uh, of which 19, he spent, 19 of those he spent as partner. He's one of Australia's leading industrial relations lawyers, having drafted the work choices legislation, and you know, it's a bit complicated, and, and represented Patrick Stevedores in the famous 1998 waterfront dispute. Please welcome Graham. Thank you very much, Greg, and uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, it is an honour to speak to the, the Centre for Independent Studies. Uh, I don't know how you do it, Greg, over 40 years, and you seem to go from uh, strength to strength. Uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, it's quite appropriate a gathering here uh, before an organisation that's so committed to democratic principles uh, that uh, I talk to you about uh, that very topic. Uh, if uh, we were looking at uh, a country like Cambodia, uh, where uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen's control over the country's judiciary is, uh, uh, involves a pattern of subservience for pretty well the whole 30 years of uh, his reign, um, when, we, when we read about those things, it's a little bit ho-hum, uh, because we think, uh, well, Cambodia is clearly not a democracy, we, we don't expect uh, anything more. Um, but when the President of the United States uh, resorts to Twitter uh, to criticise recent judicial decisions, uh, it's a cause for significant alarm. And uh, uh, it's quite an obvious uh, undermining of the rule of law. Uh, and uh, former Chief Justice of Australia's High Court, uh, Robert French, in his first speech following his retirement, uh, condemned it in no uncertain terms. He said uh, the US President's statement could not be dignified as criticism of, ju of a judicial decision. It was rather a content-free coupling of epithets uh, calculated to mitigate the political embarrassment caused by the ruling by suggesting that it and the so-called judge somehow lacked legitimacy. Such remarks may be seen as calculated to undermine respect for the rule of law. Now, in the context of Australian industrial tribunals, we've seen in recent times the first determination of the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal uh, last year uh, quashed by legislation and the tribunal abolished in the process. Uh, the recent penalty rates determination has been described as uh, 
a shocker, a kick in the guts uh, by the leader of the opposition. Uh, we've had uh, in recent days Sally McManus uh, expressing the view that there is uh, no problem in unions breaking laws perceived by the union movement to be unjust. But these are all uh, overt examples of interference uh, and undermining of the rule of law and uh, the independence of courts and tribunals. Such transgressions uh, are easy to identify and uh, supporters of democratic principles, uh, apart from Bill Kelty, have been quick to, to condemn them. Uh, on the other hand, covert capture and interference is much harder to detect and more difficult to remedy. Uh, but uh, I ask rhetorically, what, what causes the most damage? And when you have both forms operating in tandem, uh, I suggest that it can be quite a devastating combination. I contend that uh, it can cause untold damage to democracy and the integrity of institutions mm -hmm. and the flow-on consequences for justice, the economy and society. Now, in this address, I want to examine Australia's democratic processes and how I believe they're being undermined by capture of courts and tribunals with specific reference to industrial tribunals. Uh, my thesis is that what we're seeing now is not a recent phenomenon. It's a natural consequence of inappropriate interference over a number of years. And uh, the transgressions have not been highlighted or condemned in terms that they should have been and there's been a significant deterioration in the standing and integrity of industrial tribunals as a result. I suggest that uh, it's not just the interference but also the tacit acceptance of its exercise that has led to this situation. And uh, I say that uh, it's no longer appropriate to observe it and walk on by. Those who do so are a large part of the problem. So the principles of the rule of law are perfectly clear. They encompass the notions of government bound by and ruled by law, equality before the law, the maintenance of law and order, the efficient and predictable application of justice and the protection of human rights. Courts and tribunals have a responsibility to respect these principles and society needs to hold them to account to ensure that they do. It's been uh, 15 years since uh, Dyson Hayden's celebrated address to the Quadrant Society in which he attacked judicial activism. Uh, he said that a key factor in the speedy and just resolution of disputes is the disinterested application by the judge of known law drawn from existing and discoverable legal sources independently of the personal beliefs of the judge. He said that judicial activism badly impairs the dual requirements of a firm grip on the, uh, on the applicable law and total probity. He said that a fundamental change in the judiciary has taken place, where a large segment is comprised of ambitious, vigorous, energetic and proud judges who think they can not only right every social wrong, but achieve some sort of immortality in doing so. Now, a further ingredient in relation to uh, uh, industrial tribunals is the extent of discretion which is in involved. Legal 
constraints exist and legal tests must be applied. But uh, a decision, for example, as to whether penalty rates should be modified or whether a dismissal is unfair involves the application of a broad discretion. It's based on legislative requirements to take a non-exhaustive list of factors into account. Now, it's here that uh, Hayden's observations about ambitious, vigorous, energetic and proud judges comes into focus. Many members of industrial tribunals have spent a professional lifetime pushing a particular cause or representing parties from one side of uh, the labour capital divide. For the proper functioning of an independent tribunal, there is an acute need to rise above partisanship. Outcomes should not depend on the background of the tribunal member. The law must be properly applied. Principles should be developed in an inclusive and balanced way, and they should be well understood and consistently applied. And it's the same for bodies such as the Human Rights Commission. Overreach, looseness with the truth, low commitment to accountability and excessive zeal are not appropriate attributes. Safeguards against capture and partisanship and the appointment of people with the highest level of integrity are necessary to maintain community support. Now, in recognition of the inherently political nature of labour relations, safeguards against capture exist in other Western democracies. In the UK, the Employment Appeals Tribunal hears appeals against decisions of employment tribunals. A single judge sits on each appeal and the business of the tribunal is governed by the president. Presidents are appointed for four-year terms and are generally judges of the High Court, which sits uh, below the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court in the UK judicial hierarchy. The president will generally be a serving judge of the High Court who comes to the Employment Appeals Tribunal to assume the President's role and returns to the bench after the four-year term. There are no questions of full bench compositions uh, or lengthy period of domination by powerful individuals. The jurisdiction is stable and by Australian standards remarkably free of political controversy. In the US, the National Labor Relations Board dates back to 1933. It originally had three members and it was expanded to five with the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. The members are appointed for five-year terms <clears throat> and each year the five-year term of one of the five members expires and a replacement can be appointed. Appointments are made on the nomination of the US President but must be confirmed by the Senate. Interestingly, the political affiliation of each appointee, which is usually either Democrat or Republican, not exclusively, is disclosed on their appointment. And the balance and composition of the board is transparent uh, and appears to acknowledge the openly political nature of the role. In fact, the, the political affiliation of all members of the NLRB since its establishment is set out on the website uh, today. Now, Australians would feel uncomfortable about that because uh, uh, we assume that uh, on appointment to such a body, uh, members become apolitical. However, the US uh, disclosure appears to be intended to highlight the background and guard against covert bias and capture. <coughs> uh, there have been controversies over appointments, as you might have uh, noticed in recent years, in 2008 and 2009, 
uh, George W. Bush uh, proposed some uh, replacements to vacancies that were not approved by the Senate and then he refused to nominate others. Uh, and uh, that led to a situation where the, the five-member tribunal was down to, down to two members. Um, Wilma Liebman and uh, Peter Schaumber, one, one Democrat and one Republican. They decided that they would uh, uh, decide all the cases on which they could agree. And they decided uh, 400 cases in that period uh, over those couple of years. Um, only to have uh, the quorum for the tribunal challenged, had different decisions of different courts, and ultimately the matter went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said the, uh, the two-member tribunal was uh, invalid, and all of the 400 decisions uh, were also invalid. Uh, what that required was uh, the vacancies to be filled, which, uh, which did occur, and uh, the new members then re-decided those 400 cases in the same way as they had been decided before. I think that's an example of uh, members of the tribunal adopting uh, a responsible approach to decision-making, uh, and uh, uh, quite illustrative of the, the need for safeguards and uh, to ensure uh, there is not capture and bias in decision-making. And I think we can learn not only from the, the UK system, but also the, uh, the US system. Uh, transparency and fixed terms uh, in those jurisdictions uh, appears to act as a check on domination and capture. So um, how does Australia compare? Uh, over the last 10 years, the New South Wales Industrial Commission has had a spectacular fall from grace. Uh, it was once uh, uh, the self-proclaimed, widely proclaimed, leading industrial tribunal in Australia, <coughs> had a busy jurisdiction, many distinguished lawyers amongst its members, and a fine reputation. <coughs> Richard, Richard uh, Beattie's father, as a previous Chief Justice, was instrumental in uh, in uh, establishing that reputation. But uh, it's had a, a rapid decline, and there's no doubt many reasons for that, including the dominance of the federal jurisdiction after work choices. But uh, there was also some uh, judicial overreach, some controversial decisions and intervention by the New South Wales Court of Appeal, ultimately, and also uh, some inappropriate practices of allocating important matters to um, select members. Commencing under President Bill Fisher, some presidential members fell out of favour and found themselves not utilised on important full benches. The situation worsened under the next president, where uh, pretty well all important full bench matters were dealt with by a few select presidential members, and leading lawyers on the tribunal were sidelined and a practice known as the A and B team approach that seriously undermined the tribunal's standing and integrity. Now, a consideration of the, the federal jurisdiction must, uh, of course, begin with the 1980s Staples Affair. Uh, for those who don't recall it, former communist Justice Staples uh, who died only last year, became a, a controversial figure on the Australian Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. 
so much so that the President, Sir John Moore, confined him to full bench matters where the outcome of cases was likely to depend on the views of others. Mary Gordon resigned in protest, but the restrictions on his caseload continued until the Hawke government invoked uh, what I term a special variant of the, the pea and thimble trick. As part of a rewrite of the legislation, the government replaced the Australian Conciliation and Arbitration Commission with a new body, the Australian Industrial Relations Commission, and appointed all the previous members, apart from Jim Staples, to the new body. Michael Kirby said at the time, how could any member of the Australian Industrial Relations Commission henceforth perform his or her duties without the knowledge that he or she acts under the implied threat established by the Staples case, an important pillar of the independence of a vital national tribunal has been knocked away. Now, Michael Kirby was also uh, vocal about the next uh, assault on the independence of uh, the Industrial Relations Commission. The Hawke government departed from a long-standing convention of appointing successive members on the nomination of uh, peak bodies of employers and unions. The ACTU not only nominated many of its own bright young acolytes, uh, but also chose several employer representatives, uh, rather than allow the Confederation of Australian Industry to nominate its preferred candidates. A rumour has it that an employer nominee had his appointment vetoed by the ACTU. Now, Kirby criticised uh, this breach of protocol in a patron's night address to the Industrial Relations Society of Victoria, uh, and I uh, was present at that speech. When he delivered the speech, he laid the blame fairly and squarely at the feet of uh, ACTU Secretary Bill Kelty, uh, consistent with media reports at the time. But in his uh, written speech, which uh, you can still find on the High Court website, um, the mention of Bill Kelty is not there. The appointment uh, protocol delivered a sense of balance to the tribunal and contributed to its reputation and standing. Since it was abandoned, every successive government has sought to redress perceived imbalances created by the previous government by appointing people acceptable to the new government. So ever since the late 1980s, the appointment process has become politicised and it is doubtful that the tribunal has been truly balanced ever since. Kirby was right to criticise the abandonment of the protocol and its demise, uh, I suggest, has had a lasting and ongoing effect on the standing of the tribunal. But uh, this was not the most egregious assault. The appointment of Justice Barry Madden as President of the Australian Conciliation and Arbitration Commission and uh, the successor of the Australian Industrial Relations Commission following the retirement of Sir John Moore was uh, an unusual choice for a Labor government. Uh, Justice Madden had a strikingly similar background to me. He, we both worked in industrial relations in the resources sector before moving into the law. We did our articles at the same uh, Melbourne law firm, renowned for its dominant employer clientele, industrial relations practice. In 2012, the prospects of Minister Shorten in the Gillard government appointing me as president uh, could safely be estimated as next to none. However, in 1985, uh, widely understood to be with the support of Bill Kelty, Justice Madden was appointed 
to the prized position of president by the Hawke government. It appears uh, from subsequent events that support for his appointment carried with it uh, expectations of uh, future treatment. When uh, President Madden commenced uh, uh, his inauguration speech, uh, there was mention that he had adopted an open door policy. <clears throat> In fact, uh, he'd recently had the door removed between his office and his associates' offices and he encouraged uh, consultation with relative relevant parties about emerging and important matters. Of course, uh, representations needed to be appropriate, uh, if only they were. Uh, it wasn't long before relations between Bill Kelty and Justice Madden soured. There were scathing public comments about decisions. After the 1991 national wage case decision, Bill Kelty was quoted as saying, it's a sickening decision, but there is no reason for the trade union movement to eat the vomit. The ACTU then launched a, a wage campaign regarded as designed to put pressure on the Commission to revisit the matter of enterprise-based wage increases, which it subsequently did. It's uh, widely rumoured at the time that there were also private phone calls uh, to Justice Madden uh, berating him uh, from the same quarter. And, uh, from what I've been told, uh, those rumours may well be true. My source is a current ALP Member of Parliament who told me that uh, he was a senior union official at the time and he was present in Justice Madden's chambers when such a call came through. Justice Madden put the call on the speakerphone and uh, he was able to listen to the berating. Uh, Justice Madden told his visitor that he wanted him to be aware of the treatment being meted out to him. Now, Barry Madden was uh, very principled and strong and he didn't succumb to pressure, uh, so the pressure increased. The ACTU worked closely with the Keating government to shift the emphasis of the system away from conciliation and arbitration and towards enterprise bargaining. Indeed, uh, as I recall it, the then Assistant Secretary of the ACTU, Ian Ross, was seconded to the Prime Minister's office in the lead up to the passage of the Industrial Relations Reform Act 1993. That act involved momentous changes to the industrial relations system in Australia, but tucked away in the legislation was also a very significant change to the structure of the Commission. The bargaining functions of the Commission, all powers in relation to certified agreements, enterprise flexibility agreements, powers over bargaining periods and protected industrial action, facilitating agreements, conciliation over agreements and paid rates awards. In fact, most of the important functions under the revised system and the functions that materially affected the most important industries in the country were to be dealt with in a special way. They were not to be administered by the President but by a Vice-President assigned by the Governor-General to be the head of the bargaining division. In other words, not the President or a person chosen by the President, but by a person chosen by the Executive. The first and only Vice-President assigned to the bargaining division was the newly appointed architect of the legislation, then 35-year-old uh, Assistant Secretary of the ACTU, Ian Ross. And Justice Madden's powers uh, were to be relegated to the back seat, but he died in office early in 1994 before the new provisions came into effect. 
Uh, there could not have been a more direct attempt to upset the power structure of the Commission than this episode. But it was not the last. Like many of these transgressions, it became a precedent for further actions. When the ALP won the 2007 federal election, it planned to implement far-reaching workplace relations reforms. It was intended that the tribunal could become a one-stop shop operating out of shopping centres and regional locations rather than just capital cities. The existing tribunal was to be replaced by a modern version. Positions would be up for grabs. Press reports suggested that certain members would not be reappointed to this uh, postmodern circus. Uh, union sources put me at the top of the list. Uh, so was the Rudd-Gillard government going to invoke the Staples pea and thimble trick? Well, for two years, uh, uh, we didn't know the answer. Ultimately, it didn't take that step. Uh, the body known as Fair Work Australia was established with the same members uh, as the AIRC. The name was pretty awful, uh, but uh, the implied threat against uh, AIRC members, identified by Michael Kirby, uh, was uh, uh, operated with great force for the entire two-year period until the composition of the new tribunal was finalised. In addition to these structural manipulations, there have been examples of actual executive interference with industrial tribunal decision-making and outcomes. A significant example is the 2008-2009 award modernisation exercise. Under the scheme of the Gillard legislation, award modernisation had to be undertaken in accordance with a ministerial instrument known as the Award Modernisation Request. It was quite a prescriptive instrument, 41 paragraphs in the initial request uh, that required, uh, 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 had additional objects, procedural issues and specific requirements for certain terms and conditions of employment. It was here that the seemingly inconsistent objects of not disadvantaging employees and not increasing costs for employers were mandated. Uh, the assignment of the task by the executive with specific substantive and procedural requirements was a new level of executive intervention into the work and decision making of the tribunal. The tribunal's functions uh, could hardly uh, be described as independent. As the process unfolded, uh, matters began to be addressed in stages by the full bench and uh, unsurprisingly many parties were not happy. But it became apparent that uh, there was a parallel process in operation, an informal appeal uh, to the executive. When a party was not happy with an outcome, they made representations to the minister and over the period from June 2008 to November 2009, Minister Gillard issued eight sets of variations to the ministerial request. The 41 paragraphs ballooned out to 70, uh, quite prescriptive requirements. Now, I, I contend that the award modernisation process could only be described as a joint executive tribunal exercise to supplement the legislative safety net the independent role of the tribunal to determine terms and conditions in awards was grossly compromised through that process. And the next uh, uh, episode uh, uh, occurred in 2012 uh, with the matters that have been subject to some publicity today 
with the re-establishment of vice president positions within the tribunal. <coughs> the uh, announcement of that reform in October 2012 by Minister Shorten uh, came as uh, something of a surprise to me and uh, most other members of the, the tribunal. Uh, I found out about it uh, when the minister made that announcement. Uh, the president told me he found out about it when he was given a copy of an exposure draft of the legislation shortly before it was released by Minister Shorten. It, it was clearly a, a very controversial proposal. It was condemned in no uncertain terms by the Law Council and uh, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry and many other employer groups. Uh, representations as to the need, rationale and purpose of the changes were uh, inconsistent and confusing. President Ross uh, advised uh, Fair Work Australia members that he had raised concerns with the government about remuneration, status and, and cross-appointments from the federal court and that absent changes to address these concerns, he saw little purpose in the proposed recreation of the vice president level. However, when the changes were considered by a Senate committee, the government representative, John Kovacic, who's now a deputy president of the Fair Work Commission, said in written and oral submissions that the vice president positions had been created based on recommendations made by President Ross. No other purpose or rationale for the changes was provided. I asked the president to clarify his position publicly and he declined to do so and the legislation passed uh, through Parliament in December 2012. Now, I think there's only two possible explanations for this discrepancy. Either the President did not, in fact, convey the views to the government that he told Fair Work Commission members that he had conveyed, or the government uh, misled the Senate by creating the impression that Justice Ross supported the changes when it had been advised that he did not. Justice Ross did not correct the representations of the government to the Senate inquiry. But whichever explanation is correct, the episode, uh, I think, is a blight on the integrity and standing of the Commission, uh, even though uh, the fix was in, but not everyone perhaps got their lines right. In June 2013, Justice Ross confirmed to the Senate estimates that he had made the proposal to the government in April 2012, fully six months before the announcement by Minister Shorten. And uh, the only confusion was whether he sought one or two positions uh, of Vice President. It's uh, unprecedented for the head of a tribunal to seek changes to the structure of the tribunal without explaining any rationale or communicating to those affected. It's unprecedented for a government to pick up and run with a proposal with or without the belief of ongoing support from its proposer with no rationale other than the request by the president and in the face of very strong principled opposition from bodies such as the Law Council of Australia. There would appear to be no other explanation and this was a, a deliberate collaboration to affect the makeup of the tribunal uh, with favoured appointees at the expense of those who held senior positions in the hierarchy at the time. It wasn't just a demotion for the two people nominated or designated as uh, uh, 
uh, vice presidents. It was a demotion for all of the deputy presidents of the commission who moved down, down the, uh, the chain, as it were, as a result of the uh, insertion of the level above deputy president. That level, by the way, had been abolished by the same Labor government three years earlier and re-established uh, at that time. Now, um, incidentally, Michael Kirby uh, uh, was asked to comment on these events and uh, in what must be a first, he declined. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Michael Kirby's speeches, in fact, are a rich source of uh, material and uh, they're all still conveniently located on the High Court website. He always said that he wrote his judgments for posterity and uh, that applies equally to his speeches, which cover almost every topic imaginable. Uh, you may recall some publicity concerning one of my speeches about productivity delivered to the Industrial Relations Society of New South Wales in 2012. Uh, well, you won't find that speech on the Fair Work Commission website because all mention of it uh, was expunged at the direction of the President. Uh, but more changes uh, to practices uh, uh, were soon to be made. Um, there were changes to panel heads. Panel heads have important responsibilities uh, over particular industries. They're a contact point for parties, uh, for significant and urgent disputes. Uh, and for as long as I recall, there has been a convention of appointing the most senior members of the tribunal to positions of panel heads. That, was, uh, that convention was dispensed with uh, by President Ross in 2012 when he appointed the most junior commissioner as a panel head within a few months of her appointment to the tribunal. Uh, that uh, uh, change was criticised within the commission in hushed tones, and, uh, but the culture of favourites and enemies became very obvious uh, uh, from that early point. Now, more significant uh, manifestations of capture then began to emerge. Aaron Patrick, writing in the Australian Financial Review in 2014, exposed a practice of the President to favour members with a union background over those with a business background for important full benches. Uh, the full article contains detailed analysis uh, of that matter. Now, uh, I've carried out my own analysis, as the Australian reports today, of uh, full bench compositions between 2013 and 2015. There were about uh, 40 important full bench decisions in that time. Uh, each full bench had at least two presidential members on them. I exclude uh, the president from that analysis. He, he should be involved in as many important full benches as his workload allows, and uh, uh, I put his involvement uh, in those matters to one side. The issue is the involvement of other senior members uh, and uh, the, the participation of those with other perspectives. <coughs> now, four of the most senior presidential members at the time, in fact, the most senior members in Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia and Victoria, were allocated to those important full benches on six occasions between them. Uh, I was one of those people and five of those full benches I was on, uh, so pretty slim pickings for the others. Uh, each of those four 
people had a business background. The four presidential members who most frequently sat on important full bench matters happened to have a union background and they were uh, put on full benches between them 54 times in that same period, 54 as against six. Uh, and uh, uh, as I say, the, the, uh, the six were the most senior people in each of the states of Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia and Victoria. So in other words, uh, four presidential members with a business background had a very limited involvement in major cases and those from a union background had a significant involvement. It's uh, significant that the four marginalised senior presidential members uh, have since departed the tribunal or are about to do so. The Madden device uh, was not only carried into effect uh, on this occasion by virtue of the restructure of the tribunal to affect uh, powers, but it was given greater potency by the use of the combined, uh, combined use of the A and B team approach uh, that had uh, so affected the standing of the New South Wales Industrial Commission. <coughs> Now the president of a court or chief justice of a court or tribunal is the first amongst equals uh, in decision making. They have administ uh, additional administrative and leadership responsibilities, uh, but their ability to decide matters is limited to participation in the cases in which the tribunal head is involved. Using presidential powers to influence the outcome of other cases, I suggest transgresses that fundamental principle. It undermines the position of others in the tribunal who are marginalised and misappropriates a power that the legislation does not confer. Uh, I say that it's a, a misuse of authority. It's, it's authoritarian, but not by the government. It's better described as capture by an interest group conferred when Labor was last in power. And it's the combination of techniques, overt interference and covert capture, that renders uh, the current situation uh, to the position uh, it is today. If this sort of practice occurred in a court, there would be outrage. Uh, and, uh, uh, but uh, uh, I've spoken to many people about these things and uh, uh, the, the reaction seems to be, well, we know that that happens tell us something we don't know. Um, and it's a bit like uh, uh, the situation of Cambodia. Well, you know, it's the Fair Work Commission. We expect that to occur. We know that it occurs. Um, and, uh, but it appears uh, uh, nothing is done about that situation. Uh, the Productivity Commission uh, addressed this issue and others uh, in its December 2015 report. It said the system of appointing members to the Fair Work Commission is an exceptionally weak institutional design and undermines the integrity of one of Australia's foremost decision-making bodies. Institutional change would represent one of the biggest microeconomic reforms in the last 15 years. Now, with the benefit of uh, more fulsome analysis, uh, I'd suggest that the problems identified by the Productivity Commission were understated the pattern of uh, capture 
and undue influence by interest groups that uh, I've referred to uh, and have been occurring since the late 1980s uh, uh, really is something that we should not be proud of. Uh, some of the more brazen examples uh, uh, occurring now have uh, occurred because nothing has been done about them in the past. The Productivity Commission report and international perspectives on such matters provide necessary impetus to address this problem. And uh, the uh, uh, I think the Productivity Commission was correct to identify it as a necessary and important reform. There's a lot of uh, debate about these things. Uh, conceptually, uh, uh, it's uh, said that tenure is designed to provide uh, greater independence. But if capture occurs in that context, it can seriously undermine independence and the proper application of it. Uh, so, um, we've seen a lot of debate about uh, uh, and controversy in recent times about uh, decisions of the tribunal, penalty rates for example. Uh, it's, it's of course the right of parliament to determine what uh, legislative role it wants to uh, apply in the field of terms and conditions of employment. Only Parliament can decide the extent of that role. There might be all sorts of debates about the desirability of doing so, but it, it is their right. But if the task is to be delegated, the body charged with that task must be truly expert. It must fairly and rationally take into account all perspectives. It must be independent of external influence and it must be free to discharge its functions without fear or favour. In other words, it must reflect the principles of the rule of law and it must be held to account if it deviates from that path. The experience over the past 30 years suggests, uh, to me at least, that the current Australian tribunal does not meet that standard and the result now is a result of utilising a combination of previous devices and operating under the radar is worse uh, than it's ever been. Uh, um, I'll conclude by saying this, um, I started with a reference to Cambodia. Um, I'm sure it's uh, a complete coincidence that uh, the country to which the Fair Work Commission has devoted most of its attention in its international engagement strategy uh, through international visits and delegations is Hun Sen's at Cambodia. Thank you very much. Thank you.